Welcome to The Deciding Point, our Cracked Rackets weekly roundup of the biggest storylines going on throughout the tennis world. Joining me to break down all of the action, as he always does, you know him as our Cracked Rackets do everything. Forefather of the forehand slice and baby boy, given his clean shave look, it's James Foster McDonald. Jamie, another week in paradise. How are you doing? I'm all right. Yeah, thanks for calling out. Look, I just needed a change. Okay, that's kind of what this, what what 2020 is, right? I just get bored. I needed a bit of a change. Now, I didn't go clean shaven all the way because then I actually would look 16. Uh, but yeah, this is good enough. This is good enough for me. I don't know if this is the least or the most you've looked like Jill Simone, but certainly it fits with the theme of our show. A little bit of rebranding from you, a little bit of rebranding to discuss as one of the biggest storylines. And of course, if you are new to the show, that's what we do. We break down the five biggest storylines. We end with our deciding point, have a little bit of fun throughout the way. Uh, But with that in mind, let's get into it. Westoff, give me those deciding point credits. All right, Jamie, I think the topic we have to begin with is the question that all of us tennis fans have on our minds, and it's, what will this 2021 season even look like? We still don't have a lot of details from either the ATP or WTA on what the schedule will be. Of course, we did learn a big piece of information this week as we learned Tennis Australia has made an agreement with the Australian government. The 2021 Australian Open is a go, and it's going to start on February 8th. Now, some of the other key details we learned. Players are going to need to travel to Australia on either January 15th or 16th so that they can quarantine for two weeks. They are going to be allowed to train with one other person, and I want all of you listeners to hold that thought as well, as we'll get back to that a little bit later, but they will be allowed to train for two weeks. There will be a warm-up event that starts February 1st, similar to the way the Western and Southern and U.S. Open were scheduled, and then we will get into the action in Australia on the 8th. Now, Jamie, even before we get into more details. What do you think of this decision? Does it surprise you at all? No, I mean, this is this is uh, somewhat in line with what we were speculating for a while. Um, a minor delay, something being pushed into February is something that's been talked about for quite a while right now. So glad that we have it confirmed on the book so people can start to plan around it. Um, but yeah, I mean, hopefully we're able to hold to this schedule, right? Um, I mean, I think realistically, if it only gets pushed back a couple of weeks, and the, at the end of the day, that's not that big of a deal, right? It's not encroaching on another major in the schedule. So to me, this is a win-win if it happens to work out. So here's the problem with the scheduling is that February, March, January, those three months, I don't know why I went in that order, but they all got to play their events last year, right? If you were Acapulco, Mm -hmm. if you were Dubai, Doha, your event was played. So you have a little bit of room to maneuver. If those events get canceled, if they get pushed back to later in the season, those tournaments don't take a hit. But why the Australian Open really does have to be played by the end of February, Jamie, we inch closer and closer at the start of the year to getting to the point where those tournaments who weren't played in 2021, if they aren't played for a second year consecutively, that's devastating to the finances of so many of those events. That means you're going to see you know, 250 events on both the ATP 
European WTA side, places like Charleston, places like Atlanta, uh, maybe not be able to come back. And so uh, February was always going to be the sticking month for the Australian Open. Certainly, Craig Tiley has been very confident throughout this offseason. I think the biggest issue, I just want to throw one more fact at everyone. You know, these numbers are from Thursday, but on Thursday, there were 200,000 COVID cases in America. There were 16,000 in Great Britain. There were 14,000 in France. There were 11 in Australia. So the government does not mess around there. And to even get the concession of, hey, we're going to waive our travel restrictions, we're going to bring the players in, that's a huge victory for professional tennis. But, you know, it still begs the question, Jamie, if you're a player ranked outside the top 50, if you're the 80th, 90th, 100th player in the world, do you go to Australia, have to sacrifice, you know, over a month of your season? Or do you maybe spend six weeks in South America, North America, playing challengers in the 250 clay events there? I think it's going to be a really interesting start to the 2021 season. Yeah, there's some people that are going to have tough decisions. Um, I mean, I think realistically, if you're in a spot to make that work, obviously any player who, who's, you know, on the edge there is going to try to make it work in Australia. Um, there's just such an opportunity there that you're not going to want to miss out on. But yeah, realistically, if it's looking like it's just not going to be worth it to commit to you know that many weeks, I mean, that's that's quite a process, having to commit already to that travel, then the quarantine period, then the tournament itself, especially if you don't go far um, in that tournament. That's really unfortunate, and you might be missing out on a lot of other tennis you could be playing. So it's a valid point, but realistically, you know, I, I think if you've got a good shot to compete there, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't go through with it. Yeah, the flip side is Tennis Australia planning to offer the entire purse, so $100,000 potentially pre-tax for a first round exit. I mean, that is a big incentive to fly down to yeah. Australia. But some of the other details get us into our second point here, Jamie. Uh, not We just mentioned there the full prize money, some of the other things that are going to be in place. Again, these players are going to have to be down there January 15th or 16th to quarantine for two weeks. That is not going to be waived by the Australian government. They are firm on that policy, but as a concession to these players who we know, they demand concessions. Tennis players, very, very needy, Uh, but they're going to be allowed to train with one other during that two-week quarantine period. They're going to be allowed five hours of outdoor activity. That's two hours on court, two hours in the gym, one hour to eat. The only places they're going to be allowed to go is the hotel and the Tennis Australia facilities they have for them to train. So I suppose Melbourne Park, the Australian Open Courts. Uh, And again, they're going to be tested five times. All this is to say, over the past nine months, Tennis Australia has put together a plan to try and execute the slam. And credit to them for having that plan now trying to lead even in place. But it brings up a very interesting question, Jamie, because if we know anything about tennis players, we know they can be a little bit petty. We know they are certainly very, very competitive with one another. And the prospect of being stuck with the same person to train for two weeks is very, very interesting. I know we are all looking forward to the pairings. I'm going to ask a two-part question for you, Jamie. A, who is the hitting partner person you would want to be stuck with? B, Give me the ideal pairing you are looking for. It can be ATP, it can be WTA. Name one pairing you would like to see as a quarantine couple in Australia. All right. Well, I'll start with who I would choose. Um, I I think for me, I think it's Daniil Medvedev. I mean, because especially if you're going to be playing with one person, that guy can do it all. You can go in and be like, hey, Daniil, today for the first 30 minutes, I need you to play like a slap so I can get used to that. (laughs) This, I need you to play like a push. You know, it's like you you can tell the guy to do anything and he'll do it. So as long as he's willing to work with you, uh, you know, I think that's a phenomenal one. And 
yeah, you know, he can throw in the janky hacks, but also he can get you in a great rhythm, right? If you're like, hey, I need you to not miss a ball for 10 minutes. Uh, you know, that that's just somebody you want to be hitting with and preparing you for competition. So I think Daniil Medvedev is my pick there. Now, it's a really good pick. Let me just uh, let me just jump in on that as well because I, you know, I, hey, great shot to you. I think an equivalent of that would be Alex Diemenauer, who is just like, hey, are we going to grind for two hours? Am I a thousand percent certain I'm going to be worked out to a T? I'm not going to need to spend any more than two hours on the court today. And then, you know, we've learned a little bit more about him through these past nine months as well. Pretty funny, pretty laid back. That's probably my pick on the men's side. On the women's side, by the way, I'm taking Sabalenka because I just, two weeks with Sabalenka, I just want to be like, who are you? Like, what what do, what do you do when you're not on the court? Because I've just, I'm fascinated by her. So that would also be my pick. And then talk about someone who's got a ton of racket talent. I think that could be really fun. Yeah, that could be a fun one. Well, for my ideal pairing, um, this seems a little bit unfair, but I don't care who is on the other side of it, but I want somebody to be warming up with Sarah Arani at all points just so I can have video of it because you know she's going to freak out and get super pissed regardless of who it is. The person on the other side is going to get a great hitting session and let's be honest, you're going to get the same ball over and over and over. That's phenomenal. You're going to get your rhythm on those courts and then you get to practice just hitting Mach 5 off of the return. So listen, to me that's the ideal pairing and I have to see the video of it because you know that's just going to be so funny. We talk about you, only undefeated high school tennis coach in Missouri State history. Hey, great shot. But of course, I could see you coaching Sarah Ronnie. That pairing lasts a week. She's like, you're going to hit another forehand slice at me. She's like, just go. She's like, this, this is over. Uh, but no, I think that's a really fun pick. In terms of a dynamic duo, I mean, I would love to see a Sasha Bublik Kyrgios practice session just because like, what do they do? Like yeah, two hours, you put the, is it like a three-hour underhand serve session like it just gets creative it gets it gets interesting or like maybe you put the most rigid person maybe you put like I don't know I don't know if he's actually rigid but like Paolo Lorenzi and Nick Kyrgios that's the odd couple two weeks of them together what happens your guess is as good as mine uh so that could be uh, certainly a very fun one but of course there will be plenty more information who's going to be playing australia what will that look like we will talk about it more throughout this off season let's move to our next point now jamie and we're going to switch gears here we talk a lot of pro tennis on this show uh but of course here at cracked rackets we love ourselves some college tennis and i know college tennis fans across the country so excited for the fact that we will have an ita kickoff weekend we will have a national indoors and of course to set things off we will have a kickoff draft and of course here at Crack Rackets we did our ITA mock draft all of you can find that on our YouTube channel you can find the podcast version on the Great Shot podcast feed uh, but of course this is one of the most fun events the fact that these teams get to pick where they go get to pick who they play uh, you would love to see that incorporated in every sport and that they have it in college tennis just a beautiful feature Jamie your thoughts on the kickoff weekend draft your thoughts on just the college college tennis season starting up in January. Yeah, I mean, look, bottom line, uh, I think I speak for pretty much everyone at Cracked Rackets. We're just so pumped, right? Because it is looking like this is going to be what we're going to have to primarily watch. I say have to, like it's a bad thing, but this is what we're going to have to watch in January when it comes to to, to this sort of level of tennis. So, um, look, it, it's a fun switch of pace. Obviously, I'm not going to go into the points. You guys spent a couple hours going very in-depth on the mock draft, which was a ton of fun to watch, I, I will say. Uh, it's phenomenal stuff. But, yeah, it's such a cool dynamic that they get to do that, and it adds just a another another level of gamesmanship um, to college tennis which is already rife with it so look i think it's a phenomenal thing it's going to be a ton of fun to watch and see how it all plays out throughout the month 
Yeah, look, I you mentioned it. We said it all in that two-and-a-half-hour shout-out to Matt, Chris, Shannon at Slam Tennis, and, of course, coaches Woodson and Spencer for joining us on the show. I'll just reiterate here quickly what I said there, the, the summary of it. As Stanford goes, the rest of the draft goes. If Stanford is forced to go to number one seeded USC, it means geography is going to play a huge factor, and that is something we've talked about before. If you've watched any sports, whether it's college, professional, doesn't matter the league, it doesn't matter the sport. Uh, we are living in a global pandemic. So if you can play someone nearby, if it's just the logistics of it are easier, it's more likely to happen. And so uh, be on the lookout for that throughout the kickoff weekend. Geography is going to play a far more critical feature than it ever has before. That being said, only eight teams qualify for national indoors this year in D1. It means the kickoff regions we're going to have are going to be spectacular. And yeah, to Jamie's point, if college tennis is all we have in January, I promise you tennis fans, you're going to be more than satisfied. But you know, to see more of that, again, go check off our ITA kickoff weekend mock draft. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on the Great Shot podcast feed. Let's switch gears here now to the thing we alluded to in our opening, Jamie. It's not just you who's doing a little bit of rebranding this week. The WTA announcing the launch of their comprehensive new rebrand, of course. It is a couple of different components to it. There's a brand new logo. There's a renovated uh, tournament schedule. There's a renovated nomenclature for the tournaments. They have finally synchronized with the ATP Tour, decided on going 250s, uh, WTA 1000s, WTA 500s, just WTA 125 nows, although I will note that for the WTA, the 250s do not give 250 points, the 125s don't give 125 points, it's just about getting the nomenclature aligned, and honestly, that's fine with me, because if you ask any casual tennis fan, hey, how many points do you get for winning an ATP 250 quarterfinal, they'll be like, huh? They'll be like, what? Like, I don't know. What's an eighth of 250? And it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, the point being, Jamie, in general, your thoughts on the WTA's rebranding, the efforts they are having coming into a new decade. I, I mean, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I think they sat down and recognized. They've probably known for a while, and this gave them an opportunity to rebrand this thing because they really did need to. Um, whether that's just to make things more efficient and easier for the fan, or it is setting something up for down the line things being um, synchronized and synergized with the ATP, regardless of what that end purpose is, that end goal, I think it just makes things much simpler for the spectator. So I think that's great. Um, generally speaking, I mean, you, of course, you and I both read the whole press release. It, it's just about getting that fresh start um, that I think the organization really needs. And, and, you know, again, I think the nomenclature is a really important piece of this. You know, for a while it was kind of going back and forth between like Imperial and metric. I'm like, okay, what's a mandatory (laughs) premiere this premiere that like, let's just get it on the same page. So it makes sense. So to me, that's the part that sticks out the most. And I think it's a really, really good thing to, to be happening now. Yeah, I would have two reactions to this. One component we didn't mention, the marketing campaign, they're launching WTA for the game. It's going to be 30 to 60 second commercial spots. And the thing the WTA did so well that the ATP could never, not ever accomplish is the fact that they got every player in the WTA to tweet out in synchronization, hey, this is, you know, for the game, all of these different, the new WTA logos, the new photos they have on the websites, all of it 
in sync, all of them displaying some sort of tweet in the first 72 hours of the relaunch of this marketing campaign. And just that sort of, I hate to use this consultant speaking word. This is how you know I was home last week. I've been around my brothers. To, to have that sort of synergy between players, between organization, between sponsors, that doesn't happen in tennis. And so it is a recognition of, hey, players drive the marketing for these sports as much as anyone nowadays. You know, it is all about player empowerment in modern day sports. And the WTA is embracing that. And for them to do that, one could argue, well, honestly, one doesn't even have to argue it's late because they're doing it. They recognize what needed to happen and they are doing it. Now, the second thing component of this, and I've talked about this a little bit elsewhere, I think this is a recognition that they missed their next-gen WTA window, right? The next-gen campaign for the ATP might be the single most successful marketing campaign they've had of the 21st century. We know guys like Hachinov, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, Shapovalov. That's the next-gen crew. It stuck. It worked. The branding worked. They were the next generation of stars. The WTA next generation of stars are already here, right? Osaka, Andrescu. Kennan, Sviantek, all Grand Slam champions, all still under the age of 24. Uh, Ashley Barty, 24 years old. And look, they have already established themselves. And so, you know, I think for the 2000s, 2010s, there was a lot of, we can just coast off Serena. If she's in a final, we're going to get X on the ratings and we're going to hit our numbers. And that's fine. This is a recognition that, hey, we have this next generation of really 20 to 50 stars on tour, 20 to 50 different players who, if things go right, they can pop. And this is to advertise all of them. So I, I think they nailed it. I'm a big fan. Yeah, I think they did. I, look, I think they did a lot of really smart things here. I, I will say, in, in fairness to the WTA, the ATP, having that branding with NextGen, the, the sort of dynamic of the tour allowed them to have that a lot easier because of the fact that there was True. a lost generation. True. And it was like, okay, well, you know, let's really hit it hard on this next one where regardless of the level they get, you know, the big three are going to be like 40 by the time these guys are in their prime. So let's <laughs> actually, you know, capitalize on this because at yeah. some point they are going to overtake the game. Whereas that step might not have been as clear on the women's side, just because, you know, we've had many people different winning different majors, obviously Serena still so dominant at the top, but just a bit, uh, a little bit different of a landscape, but yeah, overall a really good thing. And, and I'm excited to see, and hopefully, you know, this does wonders for them in terms of numbers, ratings, whatever they're trying to achieve with the new marketing campaign. Mm -hmm. Well, our final question in lieu of this marketing campaign for our deciding point today, I asked you, Jamie, we see their new logo. They've incorporated a player into that logo, uh, maybe perhaps trying to evoke the Jerry West of the NBA logo, him dribbling to the side. We all know what that NBA logo is. So I wanted to ask you this question. I have my answer as well. You're crafting your ideal WTA player logo. Who is it or what is it? What does it look like? Well, again, another cheap shot here, but I feel like they already did it with Sarah Arani serving right now. Uh, no, I mean, listen, I, I think if this isn't Serena Williams for your pick, you're crazy. Um, I mean, she has yeah. been the definitive icon of the WTA, and rightfully so. Um, and so I feel like that should continue. I, I will say the WTA definitely sort of took a page out of the ATP book here. If you go look at when ATP re revamped their logo, what was it, roughly a year ago? Maybe more? I don't know at this yeah. point. Um, it's very similar, right? It's just sort of one prime primary color, uh, a nondescript player hitting a shot, and that's what it is. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it would have been a little bit more fun to go after sort of a defining uh, picture of Serena with a fist pump or right after a shot, for example, because I think she's earned that. But regardless, I mean, this... It, this is a smart play too. Nobody's going to get mad at him because it's just like, hey, here's this person playing tennis. So I, I get it. Yeah. 
But what, did they go to the generic trophy store? Or they're just like, give me tennis players Basically. serving. Like, it's got to be, and I'm considering standing up to do it, but it's got to be like the Serena crouched, like the, come on. Like, we all know the thing. It's got to be that. That is the image of the WTA. That is what you think about when you think about the power of these athletes and just, again, their tenacity, their drive. It's that That is the image that comes to my mind. There would have just... Everyone would have been happy with that. If you call Serena Williams the logo from here on in, I think that's worthy of her status. She is the face of WTA tennis. She is the greatest women's tennis player, maybe the greatest tennis player, period, we have ever seen. So yeah, I agree with you. I just think opportunity missed. You could have had really fun with this logo, some sort of fist pump, maybe like a, a curled something. Who knows? They could have done that. See how I showed off the bicep and there was nothing there? That's why I wouldn't be the logo. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I mean, let me hollis through the guns. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, that I, I agree with you. I think that uh, overall, really, really good job by the WTA. Certainly, we could have had even more fun. But those are the biggest stories in tennis over this past week. Of course, again, we are in off-season mode. So we will continue to focus on all of the things we think will be influential heading into this 2021 season. And of course, if you have missed anything from the past week, be sure to go check out our website, crackrackets.com. But with that in mind, for my wonderful co-host, James Foster McDonald, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at Cracked Rackets, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been watching another edition of The Deciding Point. We hope you all had a wonderful week, and we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone.